the way you duck into the punch of fascism is by thinking we can't do better. And corporate rule is already killing us. We can't take more of the same. Whatever yesterday was is not acceptable. And the only way out of this crisis is to boldly claim the future. And that's going to be a future where Americans can get health care as a matter of right. It's going to be a future where we respect the rights of indigenous communities and the resources beneath their feet. It's going to be a future where we put human beings at the center of our public policy and we put corporations where they belong. Punch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Uh, again, I want to make my plug as always for Counterpunch. How important is alternative media in this time, in this time of the pandemic when we're hunkered down in our corona bunkers in various parts of the country and of the world? I, I know that I am very much valuing alternative media. The few places that I do go every single day that I support, um, you know, I, I highly value them and particularly now when the corporate media is just so much noise and we're inundated with just so much sadness and so much tragedy. And so um, I think it's really worthwhile to support those outlets that you really do respect that are putting out good content and Counterpunch is one of them. You can support us with a subscription to the magazine. As I noted in our last episode, uh, next, uh, next issue is the last one. So what that means is that when you subscribe to the print magazine, you will automatically be a Counterpunch subscriber and you will have access to the brand new subscriber only content that will be on the website. That's going to include all kinds of articles that would normally have been in the print magazine, plus new content, additional podcasts, all kinds of other stuff that's going to wind up in there. And you're making a wonderful contribution to help Counterpunch going, keep us going. So um, please do consider that and supporting us through the PayPal as well. And you can also find my other work on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. Lots more content there. Uh, I want to turn to my guest today. Really happy to speak with him, somebody who's undertaking a very important mission in my view. Uh, Shahid Batar is with us today. Uh, Shahid is a candidate for the House of Representatives from California's 12th District. He is the former director of grassroots advocacy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He is a poet, a musician. You can follow him on Twitter at Shahid for Change. Shahid Batar, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks for having me, Eric. It's great to be with you. Uh, really happy to speak with you and really happy to see left politics, progressive voices really making uh, making a run at power and really taking on some of the entrenched interests. You, of course, taking on Nancy Pelosi. We're going to get to all of that in a few minutes. But before we do, tell us a little bit about you. Um, obviously, you existed before this campaign. Who are you? What's your background? Where do you come from? I appreciate the question. Yeah, I did exist before the campaign. Uh, and I came from England, to be short, uh, by way of Pakistan. My family immigrated across the world twice, seeking freedom and opportunity, very much the same goals and values that drew so many people from all over the world to the United States over our nation's history. 
And I came up in rural Missouri. Uh, my family moved there when I was two years old. Grew up in a small town called Rosebud. It was really iconic in lots of different ways looking back. But I, you know, to put a long story short, had a chance to experience parts of the American dream. My family, uh, my dad did well for, uh, for himself. We moved to a big house in the suburbs. Uh, and then just as I was about to, uh, right as I was graduating from high school, we lost our home to foreclosure. So I saw that dream turn into a bit of a nightmare. And to some extent, I would say I experienced part of what the, well, just to finish the loop there, I started college that fall at the University of Chicago, ended up on the street within a year because I you know, couldn't even pay the registration from that fall. It took me 10 years to get my undergrad degree while I went to school at night. Uh, I was working in the financial services industry for Wall Street banks in Chicago. So I saw the precursors of the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, and I guess I experienced to some extent the precursors of the 2008 uh, financial crisis in the sense that in the 90s, I went through what I think a lot of millennials went through 20 years later and the corruption of the system that preys on working people was laid bare to me then. And you know, I spent the last 20 years after that, I had a chance to train and then teach at Stanford Law School, spent the last 20 years at the sort of vanguard of the left around the country. I was one of the first advocates for marriage equality uh, for LGBTQ couples around the country in 2004. I had a chance to represent the second elected official in the country uh, supporting the right of consenting adults to marry a partner of their choice. Uh, did a lot of work on with the American Constitution Society for three years. I was on the national uh, senior staff there, developing a pipeline of progressive jurists for the next Democratic president to appoint. Uh, founded a program to combat racial and religious profiling in a small nonprofit called Muslim Advocates. I led a nonprofit for six years dedicated to fighting the Patriot Act. It was called then the Bill of Rights Defense Committee and uh, still serve on the boards of a number of different nonprofits. I'm basically an intersectional interdisciplinary liberation agent. And I'm here to defend my neighbors and the future from the ongoing failures of a predatory corporate system that continues to put corporate interests and corporate profits before communities and human beings. I think that's very well said, but it begs the question with all of that said, with that resume, with your experience and with the possibility of doing any number of things, why this campaign? Why taking on Nancy Pelosi? I mean, this is one of the most powerful people in the country. This is somebody who you obviously understand the odds are going to be stacked against you. So explain a little bit what, what led you to this campaign specifically, as opposed to say any other number of things you could have done. Hmm. Well, yeah, I was quite comfortable at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And I, you know, I had my monthly DJ gig in the Castro and got to play music festivals and organize against police departments around the country and supporting net neutrality is a great life. Uh, and I, I didn't frankly want to leave it, but I've always, frankly, just gone where I'm needed. That's kind of what, when I went to Washington the first time, I didn't want to go, but I, I went to fight the right wing because that was what the call of the moment was. When I went to Washington the second time, I didn't want to go, but I went because that's where I was needed. And, you know, there's a, I'd rather live in San Francisco, frankly, but I go where I'm needed. And San Francisco needs a voice in Washington. Frankly, I think Washington needs San Francisco's voice to be more sincerely represented. And I'm very conscious, for instance, that SF is a, it, SF was the city where the United Nations was founded. It's a city with a very deep-seated commitment to human rights and a deep-seated commitment to peace and justice, to immigrant rights, to inclusion principles that Washington, particularly under the administration of a criminal president, has no respect for. And to see Nancy Pelosi serve as an agent of, among other things, fiscal austerity rules right-wing coups in Latin America, concentration camps at our nation's borders. These are each one of those alone, let alone all of them together, would be unacceptable to me, disqualifying. And as a constituent, I'm just not willing to be represented in that way anymore. And she's been my member of Congress for 20 years. Effectively, when I went to Washington, I was, you know, I thought of myself as representing San Francisco even then, and I always came back here uh, in between. And and I've watched her misrepresent my voice for 20 years, and I'm tired of it, basically. And at the end of the day, I grew tired of gnashing my teeth and recognizing that I have all the skills to do the job 
and I have the networks to take the seat, it occurred to me that I couldn't justify not doing it. However much, frankly, you know, I'd rather live my life. Well, that makes sense. But the the follow-up question to that would be, to what extent can you help us understand the forces that you're up against here? And what I mean is that Nancy Pelosi uh, is not simply an individual. She represents an array of interests, an array mm-hmm. of ties that she has to all sectors of capital and so forth. So um, I just want to get a sense from you, the extent to which uh, your campaign is uh, really taking on something much bigger than the Speaker of the House. Right. Well, I, the speak, I would say it's much bigger than a congressional seat. And to say that it's the Speaker of the House starts to capture, you know, what's at stake here. I mean, we are ultimately fighting for all the marbles. And I would say that if we're successful, it's not just a congressional seat that we capture. You know, I aim to end the era of bipartisan corporate rule, and we can do that in this race. Even if our movement doesn't have a standard bearer for the White House, we can still capture Congress. And the signal it will send when the leading corporate Democrat is removed, particularly by someone like me, right? I mean, I'm an immigrant. I have no property. I own nothing. You know, I've never sought money. It's not my thing, you know, but like I have a very long service history to this country defending our principles from both Democrats and Republicans. And as a, you know, someone who's done the work in the courts, in the streets, in Congress, creatively, in the nonprofit sphere, as a direct action person, you know, that background, when I hit Congress, I frankly don't think the body will know what hit it. Because in the same way that Bernie was running to be the organizer in chief, Congress doesn't have a lot of organizers in the body. And, you know, I've been in Washington for 10 years, I know how that city works. I've briefed Congress twice at the invitation of different members, you know, I would be entering with some measure of uh, expertise. And I think that against the critique that I can offer of the speaker's long disservice and misrepresentation of the city, I frankly don't think her her record can be defended. I mean, I'd put it this way. I'm looking very forward to debating her, right? And as the first Democrat to ever reach a November election against Pelosi, we do present the strongest challenge that she's ever faced in her career. And I'm particularly eager to share that contrast that many of her constituents have never had a chance to hear, right? I mean, national media depicts Nancy Pelosi as if she were a lion of the left, and she's anything but. I mean, Nancy Pelosi uh, is, you know, she showed up for the impeachment struggle like a boxer throwing a fight. She criticizes the president while doing everything she possibly could to enable him. She supported his corporate trade deal on the very same day she announced the impeachment. You know, every, his military budget, his concentration camps, all of that required her signature. And she was all too willing to provide it. And her theatrical so-called resistance to a criminal president, I think, not only cannot be tolerated, but I would describe it as as much a threat to our republic as our criminal president himself. And you know, that's, that's ultimately why I'm running. I mean, she ha- does have, you're absolutely right, the benefit of an institutional edifice that includes not only the role of being the speaker, which includes a heavier media footprint than any human being on the planet, with the exception of the president of the United States. She also can raise more corporate money than I can even fathom. She has raised already more money from corporate trade associations and their PACs than we've raised for our entire campaign. And we've raised more money for our campire campaign than anyone who's ever raised against her in 30 years. Uh, and that's just from the corporate trade association PACs whose interests she defended in the most recent coronavirus bill when she went to bat for corporate taxpayer-funded bailouts for corporate lobbying firms before. And instead of, in fact, she, she does not support a bill to cancel the rents and mortgages of the sort introduced by Ilhan Omar. Anyway, so I'm trying to wind this up here. The long story short is she has a media footprint. She has a funding footprint. And being the Speaker of the House, there is a tremendous chilling effect on any number of people who would want to confront her. It's one reason why I'm so grateful for the support of our, our endorsers. <clears throat> you know, our most recent and prolific endorser was Marianne Williamson. Other people who've endorsed us include U.S. Senator Mike Gravel, Sean King, Dr. Cornell West, Linda Sarsour, Matt Gonzalez here in San Francisco, Vina Duval, Eric Marr, 
Gabriela Lopez. You know, we have a <clears throat> a broad and diverse uh, visionary set of prolific people who recognize the need to defend the future from the failures of the past and their willingness to stand against the institutional power of the speaker reveals their and my, our shared commitment to people, we the people of the United States first instead of our careers. And Pelosi ultimately is defended by a legion of careerists and a legion of people who think that the corporate Democratic Party is the best that we can do in the face of fascism. And, you know, the rest of us recognize that the way you duck into the punch of fascism is by thinking we can't do better. And corporate rule is already killing us. We can't take more of the same. Whatever yesterday was is not acceptable. And the only way out of this crisis is to boldly claim the future. And that's going to be a future where Americans can get health care as a matter of right. It's going to be a future where we respect the rights of indigenous communities and the resources beneath their feet. It's going to be a future where we put human beings at the center of our public policy and we put corporations where they belong. I'd like to ask you a little bit about San Francisco and some of the changes that have taken place in San Francisco over the last, say, generation or so. Uh, obviously, the process uh, that has taken place in, in in the Bay Area is similar to in New York and some other urban centers. Um, but I'd like to get a sense from you uh, as someone who has deep roots in the Bay Area and who understands these changes, um, how that process has taken place. Maybe you could provide us some examples from your own experience. And then the, the sort of the real touch point here is how has Pelosi been involved in enabling these changes with the policies that she's promoted? Yeah. San Francisco and cities across the country have suffered waves of eviscerating displacement and gentrification. And the displacement here has been really severe, particularly because of an, uh, an affordable housing crisis. And it's an affordable housing crisis that has changed the face of the city, quite literally. And it has to some extent, transformed our culture. So I, I mentioned that I spent 10 years in Washington since I came out of law school 20 years ago. I had two different five-year stints there. And each time I came back to San Francisco, the city looked different, literally different. You know, the, There were neighborhoods that were browner and darker that were whiter, and they've grown more so. And you know, I don't want to say that you know that's a problem in the abstract. I love for the city to grow more diverse and for people to come into it. But when people can't survive here and they have to leave, that presents, I think, a problem for all of us. And one of the really interesting questions that I invite any you know, institutional Democrat or centrist to grapple with is, would our affordable housing crisis look any different in this country if the Democratic Party weren't led by a wealthy landlord protecting her own class interests? And that's the story in a very long story short of Nancy Pelosi under her tenure, Congress abandoning federal spending on affordable housing through the Community Development Block Grant Program. They used to funnel well over a dozen billion dollars to HUD every year, and that program's budget has fallen through the floor during Pelosi's tenure in office. And it's not as if we haven't had the money. She's hurled much more money than we've saved on housing at the military industrial complex. You know, the military budget has climbed through the roof while we supposedly don't have money for doctors or medicine, which is, you know, just foolish on its face. And I would say that with respect to the housing crisis in particular, there are a number of visionary opportunities for us to, again, claim this brighter future. In the immediate present, faced with the pandemic and the crisis in the economy, I'm very uh, supportive of Representative Ilhan Omer's proposal to cancel rents and mortgages for the duration of the pandemic. In addition to suspending rent and mortgage payments, her bill also includes support for small landlords so that, for instance, someone who rents out a room in their house or just has one extra property, perhaps, you know, that, that they're not uh, forced also to bear the cost of the pandemic, but it forces corporate landlords and banks to bear the housing costs during the pandemics. And that's, that's where the costs should lie. We've bailed out the banks before. We just did it again. Uh, there's no reason not for banks to bear the burden that, that is instead right now driving American families across the country to the wall and, and desperation. Further, if we think about housing as an opportunity to reclaim not just reviving the federal spending, 
for affordable housing owned in a neoliberal paradigm, but a new era of social housing owned by the people accountable to the residents. That's a vision that I want to reclaim in particular. And I'm a, I also support the Green New Deal for public housing introduced by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders. I had the honor of being with them at the press conference when they introduced it in Washington. And that bill would provide billions of dollars to retrofit existing public housing and to include in the green future social housing owned by the people, accountable to the residents. And that's a paradigm shift. It's a visionary uh, approach to a housing crisis in which the speaker is unfortunately entirely complicit. And maybe just the last point I'd make there is is the class interest and, and, and her wealth inheres in real estate. Uh, she has a class interest as a landlord, and, and it does seem that her interests are reflected in her legislative record. And that's not at all consistent with the media's depiction of her as the resistor in chief. Uh, it is much more reflective of the reality of her as Trump's greatest enabler in Congress. And maybe I just note there that she and the president have a great deal in common. Uh, both President Trump and Nancy Pelosi are real estate oligarchs. They're both born into wealth, uh, son and daughter of powerful East Coast families. They both govern by photo op and theater. Um, and they're both going to be replaced this November. Help us understand, as you were kind of alluding to there in the end of your response, help us understand about the Bay Area and politics in the Bay Area. Bay Area. Um, I'm originally from Southern California, but my adult life's been spent in New York. I have a pretty uh, somewhat solid understanding of New York politics and what forces are really at play, who's really influential, etc. Uh, the Bay Area is unique in some ways and similar to other cities in other ways. And I'd like to just get a sense from you about where are the power blocks? What are the elements of capital that are lined up behind Pelosi? You mentioned real estate. What about Silicon Valley and finance and some of these other sectors in the area? Talk to me about how political power really works there. So certainly in terms of capital, the finance industry is one that she has a lock on. Tech is interesting. You know, the, the behemoth in the Bay Area and San Francisco in particular is tech. And it's up for grabs. I mean, tech breaks for me. I, I worked at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which many people describe as the conscience uh, of Silicon Valley. Uh, that puts it a little charitably to Silicon Valley because that presumes that they heed the conscience at all, which is often, you know, far from the case. But, you know, I have receipts in tech rights that enable me to and have enabled me to gain a lot of support from that sector. Immigrants in the San Francisco and broader Bay Area have a very prominent role, both immigrants uh, from Latin American countries as well as from Asian countries. And the uh, diversity of our community and its international aspect is also very influential. I would say the Chinatown and Chinese American communities across the city from the west side to the Excelsior have historically been supportive of Nancy Pelosi. I do think as an Asian American myself, uh, running to expand human rights and challenge the emergence of authoritarian powers in the United States, there many of the very same powers used by governments from which my neighbors fled uh, and their forebears fled in other countries. I think those give me the opportunities to crack Pelosi's hold on those uh, communities in the same way that I can on tech because of my work there. The gay community in San Francisco and LGBT communities across the city are pivotal and uh, uh, very influential. And having gone to court for gay rights when Nancy Pelosi refused to show up with, and she had all the institutional power and privilege of being the Speaker of the House under the Bush administration, and she refused to, op to, to come out and say that she supported marriage equality. She opposed DOMA, uh, the Defense of Marriage Acts, but she did not affirmatively endorse and champion the right of consenting adults to marry a partner of their choice. And, and I not only supported that, but I, you know, I'm a cis hetero Muslim lawyer raised in the Midwest. You know, everything about that would suggest not caring. And you know, for me, rights are intersectional and marginalization and oppression and liberation are all intersectional. And I spent that era saying to Muslim communities that marriage equality, equal rights for gay people is a Muslim issue. It's a civil right. We have to stand for civil rights, whoever they're for. And that's, that's what I've been about my whole career. 
is defending, and in that case, successfully expanding civil rights, even in an era that people would recognize as generally dark. I think a lot of people would say that the last 20 years have witnessed a pretty sustained erosion across many liberal and progressive interests. One of the very few bright spots, I would say, is the expansion of gay rights. And I'm very proud to have been on the very early wave of that movement uh, in its you know, recent <clears throat> uh, victories. And it, and it was very alarming to me and revealing that Nancy Pelosi did not wield her power and privilege on behalf of her constituents. She hedged her bets and only openly declared her support for marriage equality on the eve of the Oberfeld decision, in 10 years nearly, I think eight years after we filed uh, or we were forced into court in New Paltz. Uh, I represented the mayor of New Paltz, New York, Jason West. He was uh, elected as a uh, relatively young person in his 20s on a Green Party ticket to his town's um, uh, mayor's office. And I met him at a conference on organized resistance, talking about art and activism. I was talking about spoken word and hip hop MCs and organizing them to reclaim public space, which I've been doing in multiple cities for about 20 years. And he was talking about uh, street puppets and large scale visuals in public. And we got to talking afterward and he talked about some constituents who had uh, lost partners. They were New Paltz is in the Hudson Valley. Many of his constituents had moved there from New York City and older in life uh, folks in particular who had lived through many of them had lost partners to the AIDS Holocaust years before, and they were particularly interested in making sure <clears throat> as they were getting older that their partners could visit them in the hospital. And it was like the, the, the story of human need and <clears throat> the willingness of powerful people to turn a deaf, air to, deaf ear to them is a story that I'm just not willing to tolerate, basically. And so yeah, I'm very grateful for the chance to have litigated that case. And while the case was unsuccessful, the movement was successful. The marriage equality is a federal right now. I'm proud of that. And, and I think that that history also will be very pivotal to swaying folks, for instance, in the Castro and the gay community. So between the immigrant communities, uh, the Castro, the tech community, those are several of the critical sectors here. And I'm grateful to be supported by a lot of voices from within each of them. And just a last question real quick, uh, just to finish up on that. What about the trade unions in San Francisco? I mean, to what extent is the city uh, unionized? I mean, obviously, there are no cities in the United States that are really union cities anymore. But New York, for example, is more union city than some, some of the other large cities in the country. So uh, how is it for the trade unions in San Francisco? Are they firmly in Pelosi's pocket? Uh, how does that work? So I've had occasions <clears throat> recently to speak at labor rallies, particularly for the ILWU, the Longshoremen's Union, which has organized a few new locals at a craft brewery and a, uh, <clears throat> a bakery and um, cafe chain here in San Francisco. And among the chants we've shared there is that we say it loud, we say it proud. San Francisco is a union town. And I am disappointed to report that many of the unions have endorsed the speaker. I would describe that as reflecting something between Stockholm Syndrome and the powerful, again, chilling effect that the speaker can impose on people who have needs before her office. She is a very powerful figure and she is willing both to offer carrots and turn screws. And you know that style of leadership can compel, uh, and it has compelled at least from the leadership of some unions, a certain degree of allegiance. But given how much those positions that she takes undermine the interests of those unions rank and file, I have a great deal of confidence that we can, even without their institutional endorsement, compete for their functional support. So <clears throat> I have uh, support from rank and file members of each of the major unions, uh, if not the unions themselves. One of the unions, um, I'll leave it unnamed for the moment, is uh, opening a formal endorsement process to us. I'm very excited about it. Um, I do think in particular the, un the unions that lean to the left, so those representing educators, um, nurses, those representing uh, government employees, uh, communications professionals. I think there's a lot of opportunities, writers, a lot of opportunities, um, emerging sectors of tech workers that are unionizing, a lot of opportunities for them to support us and for us to engage those sectors of the labor movement. And, and the newer forming unions like the ILWUs, you know, being on the, uh, an active organizer <clears throat> in the cities, uh, 
socialist community, I'm very visible to the ranks of people who are organizing now. And uh, the institutional labor unions, I haven't had a chance to do any favors for, and she certainly has, and that creates a headwind. It's among the obstacles that we confront. Uh, but it's, again, one I'm quite confident that we'll have a chance to overcome, particularly because, you know, to this point, we I won 33,000 votes in the jungle primary two months ago, which is what puts me in the position of being the first Democrat to ever challenge her in a November election. And to this point, we have uh, recruited the support of 20,000 donors around the country. The scale and the national footprint that our campaign is attaining, I think, is going to enable enough support uh, that even the institutional backing for a conservative incumbent uh, by the labor unions will not be enough to save her seat. You know, we, we've, in the wake of the pandemic, particularly pivoted to the phones and we launched new digital tools to enhance and scale and streamline our phone banking operation. And many hundreds of people have been trained on our tools. We have uh, a few thousand more left to train among our established volunteers. We're getting dozens of new people are signing up to volunteer every day. We still have nearly six months left and just a single city to cover. So I have a great deal of confidence in spite of the labor unions having their own institutional interests uh, that will be in a position to vindicate the interests of their rank and file by removing the speaker and uh, empowering a bolder representation for Democrats in Congress and a more sincere representation of San Francisco in the House. All right, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about Bernie and uh, how that campaign evolved and how it uh, concluded and uh, what we can learn from that and what we can learn from the emerging left, as it were, and uh, its place in American politics. So stick with us on the other side of the break. We'll continue the conversation with Shahid Buttar. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California, well, to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. I tell you. Here on Counterpunch Radio, I'm chatting with Shahid Buttar. Again, you should follow him on Twitter at Shahid for Change. Um, we've been talking a lot about um, the campaign and some of the forces arrayed against you and so forth. But I do want to talk a little bit uh, here in in the second half of our conversation about Bernie and 2016, 2020, and what we've witnessed over the course of the last few years. So uh, I guess I'll just take it from the top and get your assessment of Bernie's campaign. <laughs> campaign and the end of Bernie's campaign and what you take from it. 
I take away from the end of Bernie's campaign that the institutional Democratic Party would rather lose to Donald Trump than lose to a voice defending climate justice and future generations. And it is a disappointing reflection of the party's willingness to coalesce against uh, the nominee who clearly, clearly had the most support, the most diverse base, uh, far and away the most support among the young people who will have to bear the costs of the status quo, which uh, you know looms very large in the choice among the uh, presumptive nominee, let's say, and the incumbent in the White House. I'd say the end of Bernie's campaign also reflected to me the one of the implications of not me us. It, it's a very packed phrase with very, frankly, intense and profound connotations, one of which, and I think this was implicit from the beginning, Bernie as an older man recognized and literally said about a thousand times in public, I can't finish this, y'all. You are going to have to finish this. And I take that very seriously. I heard him. He said, it's not him. It's us. And I get it. I understand. It's beyond one person. And I think that none of us can, with any degree of fidelity to the movement or our principles, invest in particular people all of our hopes because our values transcend people. What made Bernie inspiring, what remains, what makes him inspiring to me still, in spite of his tactical decisions in the race, which I, you know, disagree with, I, he remains the figure to have done more for working people and the left and future generations in American politics more than anyone in a century. And, you know, he is a uh, hero without rival in my mind. And, uh, I was very eager to support his administration in Washington. I remain very hopeful that he will unsuspend his campaign. We need his voice now more than ever. Um, and if the best I can do is fight a tyrant in Washington, I am happy to sign up for that too. Uh, you know, that's that's basically the the flip side of that coin. And uh, again, I was disappointed in the end of his campaign. I saw in his 2016 campaign remarkable, profound success beyond winning the White House. Bernie did more in 2016 than win the White House. We might not have won the White House, and that due, that was due to the same party machinations in 2016 that we saw in 2020. Uh, and, you know, if, if our democracy, frankly, um, was as reliable as I wish its procedural mechanisms were, he would be the president. But we can't, you know, between the role of campaign finance and money in politics, the role of corporate media and, you know, contriving public impressions, there are a lot of fingers on the scale that that skew our democracy and and the to this point have denied him uh denied us our rightful representation in washington uh but i think even if he is not going to be the president he's done so much to transform the public consciousness and the public debate i mean i'm running among other things on universal health care if you ask me in 2015 if you could run for Congress in the United States promising a right to medical care as, as a right, I would have laughed in your face. There's no way I would have thought anybody else would agree with that. I certainly supported it. It's a, it's, it's a cornerstone of a humane society, frankly, and everybody else around the world gets it. But if you, if you ask me what is the likelihood that in America enough people will figure it out, that we actually could run for office, federal office on these issues, I did not think it possible. There's no way I would have thought it possible. And the reason I'm running for office is Bernie showed that a majority of the American public already supports the vision that I have long shared with him for climate justice, for racial justice, for economic justice, for containing corporate power and putting people at the center of our public policy. These are not radical propositions. These are simple, common sense commitments. And what, the only thing inhibiting those commitments in Washington are the careers of the people who put themselves and their corporate donors first. And I'm eager to flip a script, uh, liberate a seat, and usher in a new era in Congress. So you said there in your response that um, you think that um, ultimately, ultimately what it comes down to is that the Democratic Party would rather lose to Trump than to beat Trump with somebody like Bernie with the kind of policies that Bernie was advocating. But implicit in that is the idea, I think, that the Democratic Party is all but 
omnipotent. That is to say, they wield that it wields such a degree of power that it is able to crush a grassroots movement that undeniably had millions of supporters and unquestionably had more popular energy and support than any of its rivals. And yet the party was able to crush it. So that then begs the question, and of course, you know, I'm only restating what you were obviously already pointing to. So then that raises the obvious question, why run as a Democrat? Hmm. Well, so the, the party can, just to challenge parts of the premise, the, cha- the party can crush uh, any challenge in the primary, but it can't do it in the general. That doesn't play in November. It's why the party keeps losing elections. <laughs> and, and frankly, it's, it's one reason why the leadership invites, I would dare say, demands accountability. We demand accountability of the leadership because it keeps losing elections for that very reason. The reason I'm running as a Democrat is to take the party. You know, I could run as a Green and I would know I wouldn't take the seat, but I, I'm running to take the seat. San Francisco is far and away a Democratic Party town. And, you know, I'm not running a protest campaign. I'm, I'm running for the marbles. And frankly, you know, even if I, even if I could run as a different party and still have a viable shot at the seat, it wouldn't even then necessarily have the same message within the party as removing the party leader. That's the goal for me. As much as liberating the seat, it is remove the icon of corporate rule and change the paradigm to declare basically the message that no centrist who represents an urban district is safe in the Democratic Party. Every Democrat who represents an urban district needs to either show up for their constituents or we will show them the door. And Pelosi is the next one. AOC did it with Crowley, and we are just getting started. I understand. Um, I want to push back a little bit and just ask you this question because it's something that that is constantly, uh, you know, debated in the left circles that you know that I that I run in, and you know, among communists and socialists and and others of that stripe. And you know, ultimately, the the, the question I want to ask you is when we have. Uh, socialists or, you know, progressives or however people are identifying when we have people running as Democrats and running in these campaigns, generating all of this energy, getting people to invest, whether it's investing in actual donations or whether it's investing their time and energy and so forth, and then ultimately ending up with nothing at the end of it. That is a constant cycle that Mm. at least I've seen over the course of my political life going back to, you know, since I've been of age. And so my question, my question to you is, how are we to understand this, not only your campaign, but this particular cycle? How are we to understand this as anything different from anything else we've seen previous? Right. The key is movement building. This is what differentiated Bernie from everybody, frankly, who came before. And it's what we are trying very much to emulate in our campaign. And that is the using an electoral campaign as a lever to organize people, right? So there is a traditional view of campaigns that are very staff centered. And, you know, I would even describe, you know, you were asking at one point to contrast Bernie 2016 and 2020. And if, if I had a particular contrast, I would say that the 2020 campaign was better resourced. It was more professional and it might've been weaker as a result. <clears throat> and, you know, I think the mass participation in the 2016 effort and the 2016 efforts willingness to embrace decentralized grassroots support at the time by necessity enabled a character <clears throat> of campaign that not only put people at the center, but enabled them to continue organizing even after the campaign was over. And that's the key. The campaign can't be the end or the goal. The campaign is a means to organize for liberation. And an election is one momentary opportunity to demonstrate support, to seize institutional power. And there are any number of others. For instance, in 2016, when Bernie ran for the White House, I had a chance to meet a couple that had recently moved to San Francisco from Boston and they started throwing disco parties <clears throat> at the Elbow Room, a club in the Mission. And these parties, Burn, Baby Burn, uh, Burn with an E, ended up raising $40,000 for the Sanders campaign in 2016. It was the largest recurring fundraising event on the West Coast for that summer. Uh, coming out of the party series was a group, the San Francisco Bernie Kratz, which is now the 
flagship group for the Our Revolution Network. <clears throat> it includes dozens, I think hundreds, in fact, of local members. I think the membership is something on the order of 500. They turn out dozens to meetings. And <clears throat> when Bernie launched in 2020, in fact, well before he launched in 2020, that group was organizing not just for Bernie, here's the point, but they were organizing for judicial candidates. They were organizing for a, a measure on the ballot to ensure community housing, not unlike the vision for socially owned housing owned by the people we were describing before. They were showing up for struggles around uh, police surveillance. They were showing up for struggles around immigrant rights. They were showing up for struggles around um, environmental racism here in the city, the organizing around issues and the electoral campaign being an amplifier for those issues. So our campaign, you know, we've stood very actively in solidarity with labor unions organizing those campaigns I mentioned before. Uh, most recently, Wildcat Strikers at UC Santa Cruz, who it turns out we discovered over the weekend were the targets of military surveillance, countering student worker organizers. It's just, it, it amazes me that we are tolerating this erosion into this, this not even slide, but, you know, dive into authoritarianism. We've been shouting out and supporting campaigns around immigrant rights, uh, campaigns around stopping police violence, particularly in the wake of the killing of uh, Ahmaud Aubrey comes to mind. Um, we've been standing in active solidarity with <clears throat> residents and community members at Hunter's Point. It's a neighborhood here in San Francisco, long subject to any number of marginalizations, including some pretty profound uh, environmental uh, uh, injustice issues around toxic siting and the Navy basically poisoning a neighborhood for a generation, generations. Uh, we've stood in solidarity with climate justice issues, particularly and uh, universal health care. Before the pandemic hit, we were, saying, frankly, somewhat ubiquitous in grassroots mobilizations and demonstrations around climate justice and universal health care in the city. Uh, in fact, I don't think there's been a major mobilization for climate justice in San Francisco in the last three years that I haven't participated in and promoted uh, and helped to amplify. People might remember the viral clip of some six-year-olds who visited Senator Feinstein uh, about a year ago, who she shamed in her office because they didn't vote for her, as preposterous as that was. I was with them that morning before they went to her office, and I was there when they came downstairs afterward. And, you know, I've been there with the youth climate strike, with Extinction Rebellion, with the Sunrise Movement, with uh, all of the groups supporting Medicare for All from the Nurses Union to Physicians for a National Health Plan. Um, solidarity has been the name of our game the ethos of our campaign. And it's both how we aim to win. And I think it demonstrates why I'm qualified. It's why Bernie was qualified. Solidarity is the indication of who you stand for and who you stand with and on whose behalf you'll fight when you get to Washington. And I've uh, been grateful for the chance to prove that. And I'm looking forward to taking those values to the house. What I want to get at, what I want to get at in asking that question and, and, and this follow-up is really the sort of the, the center of this ongoing debate. And certainly the debate is not going to end with uh, this election cycle. It will continue. But this debate about uh, the left and um, <clears throat> its relationship to the Democratic Party. So you're, you're on the left and you're running as a Democrat. And you said earlier in our conversation that you really seek to take, that, that you would like to take over the Democratic Party. And my question to you is, is there even, is there a historical precedent for something like that? Or is it possible that historically the only time the left has triumphed is when it has established its own parties? And if that's the case, is this a fool's errand? Oh, no, it's certainly grounded in history. FDR's history or the civil rights movement, multiple points in time in American history reflect the Democratic Party breaking for labor worker rights. The progressive era when antitrust legislation was enacted at the turn of the century, the New Deal era in the 1930s responding to the Great Depression, and certainly you know the Great Society era under LBJ, uh, under which the civil rights movement you know blossomed. There have been, yeah, any number of uh, not even moments, eras that prove the point. I mean, frankly, the corporate co-optation of the Democratic Party is the historical aberration. So I, I would say the race to uh, 
sees generalizable principles on the basis of the last 30 years, I think presumes too much. It reflects a certain myopia and an unwillingness to heed history. In fact, history would teach us why we should be more ambitious and unwilling to concede the party. Um, it was really in the, under, in the 90s, under the Clintons, <clears throat> that the Democratic Party got seized by corporations. And it is returning the party to its roots uh, that you know dominated it for decades before uh, that that's what we're doing and I see that as ultimately an inexorable project I don't think there's anything the corporatists can do can to stop it it's just a matter of how many cycles does it take for us to get there the urgency you know comes not only in the face of a pandemic but also in the form of a climate catastrophe and I do think of it as you know a race metaphor applies not only to our campaign to replace Pelosi but also our movements effort, to secure climate justice before capitalism kills us all uh, and resigns us to a future of resource wars and insufficiency and meteorological chaos, uh, all of which have already been unleashed. And we have diminishing opportunities to contain. And we owe it to the future to do everything we can to protect it. We've already done so much to undermine it. And you know, as I look to this question, I don't, it's clearly not uh, viable on the timescale that we need to establish an independent party, not in the United States under a single member district plurality system. There's a whole theory in political science around the centralization of two parties in a system that gives all the points to first place, which is, that's how we do a first past the post electoral system. So given that we have a structural entrenchment of two parties, the only path for liberation is to take one of them. And, you know, yeah, that's happened many times, 1968, most recently. Uh, it's already happening, actually, underway right now. The squad in Washington is a vanguard that is in the process of taking the party. The proposition for a Green New Deal has captured the American consciousness, just like medical, just like universal health care and Medicare for all, just like Ilhan Omer's bill to cancel rents and mortgages. These are marker bills that will transform the consciousness of a generation, having seen these kinds of proposals, I don't think the American public can unsee them. And there's nothing the past can do to defend itself. I'd even put it in these terms, generationally speaking, the deal is sealed. Millennials and Zoomers are the most progressive left-leaning that the Republic has ever seen. And we know that the conservative voices in our society are clustered at the older ends of the spectrum. You know, it, it is not a... Uh, a reflection of rocket science that, that people age and aren't with us forever. And it is inevitable that a different, differently composed electorate will emerge over time, enabling different choices at the ballot box and different corresponding policies. It's just a matter of how fast can we shrug off the yoke of a dying system that threatens to kill everyone's grandkids for the sake of putting money in the pockets of investors and shareholders of fossil fuel companies and weapons manufacturers. And, and I am running as a bet that enough San Franciscans care about the future that we're willing to cast a ballot to defend it. I think that's very well said. And just in the last uh, couple of minutes that we have here, um, let's say, let's, let's say you win, let's say you win and you're headed to Washington. How do you, how do you help us, um, feel comfortable with this idea that the Democrats and, and members of the Democratic Party are somehow going to be the agents of change that we're looking for, hmm. because you're talking about taking over the Democratic Party. But uh, at least for, for many of us, what we really fear is how the Democratic Party takes over us, how it takes over our movements, how it co-ops everything that we try to do. How is it that entrance into the Democratic Party isn't just taking over the left? That's a, it's a totally legit concern on the basis of the history, though I would say that, you know, I don't want anyone to be comfortable with anything. The way that the answer to the question is for people not to be comfortable and instead to agitate. I, we have to think globally and act locally. And it's not like we stop after election day. Election day is not the end of the process. I mean, election day is when you just get a new shot at the apple. You get to compose different people to then go at and push. And the very same things that push public officials, you know, I'm running for this office after 20 years of direct action, 
policy advocacy, impact litigation, grassroots organizing, and nonprofit leadership. And, and I recognize, I mean, I, I did all those things to push public officials. The reason I'm running for the seat is I'm tired of waiting for Pelosi to show up. And I recognize having done those other things, I can't just do those other things while knowing that my own voice in Washington and my community's voice in Washington is intransigently defending Wall Street instead of our principles. And for me, running for this seat is acting locally. This is the local act to, uh, to exercise a global solidarity praxis. And I would say that to anybody who's concerned. I mean, if you're concerned about the idea of the Democrats swallowing the left, the solution to that, there, there is no comfort to be had. The, the, the solution to that is to organize. And, and we take over the party when we organize. And when we don't, you're absolutely right. We get consumed. That's the story of the last generation. The reason we're in this mess is because there was, you know, I, I don't want to say people fell asleep at the switch. People have been organizing throughout. But, you know, I'm part of a generation. I've seen mo- many of my peers, you know, were not on an ideological front line. Uh, I've been, you know, one, I guess I'd describe it as a bright lining in the dark cloud of the financial crisis in 2008. And I think now might in the future have a similar in retrospect connotation. It was a really rough time then for a lot of people, and it radicalized a whole generation. I mean, there's a, there's a whole generation of Americans who came out of that crisis educated enough to understand that they have a shared interest in healthcare and peace and justice. You know, their forebears didn't get it. They were basically, I don't want to say that boomers were bribed, but prosperity can be alluring, and it can be really easy not to explore our shared interests when there's enough for everybody to uh, eat what they kill, as it were. You know, but in that era of prosperity, it, there was a lot of contrived abundance. And it's important in this time that so many different compounding crises are emerging from an economic crisis to a public health crisis, a constitutional crisis, a global crisis in climate chaos, a global crisis in migration and human rights. I mean, I could go on. In the face of those crises, we have to recommit to our principles, and and they include taking care of each other. That's what Medicare for All embodies. They include taking care of our kids. That's what climate justice and the Green New Deal embody. It is the failure of our system to guard those principles that I think requires us to step in to claim them. And I think you're totally right. It's a real threat to any movement, electoral co-optation, and the solution to that threat is to strike through the target. I sometimes, I'm a martial artist as well, and I, I sometimes uh, cite Bruce Lee and his Jeet Kune Do martial art that he developed as a principle. He sometimes talked about striking through a target. And, you know, in the way that if you're you know, breaking, if you're breaking the nose, you don't aim for the nose, you aim for the middle of the head, but you go through the nose to get to the target. And for me, the election is the nose. I'm not, I'm not running for a seat. I am running to do what I can to join the squad and usher in a new era of policy to propose visionary policies. I want to, for instance, end judicial life tenure to end judicial politicization and restore and recover the independence of the judiciary and our courts from the likes of Brett Kavanaugh. I fought Brett Kavanaugh's nomination in 2006 to the DC circuit. And, you know, there aren't a lot of plans for what to do about the court. I know what to do about the court. I know what to do about a bunch of different things, mass surveillance, mass incarceration. I have a 20-point reform plan to fix criminal justice and reintroduce justice into the equation. Um, When we organize around these kinds of visionary policies, whatever happens at the ballot box, we win. And it's when our movement settles for the ballot box as the indication of success that the party's interests start to attain greater weight. And so you know, I would just say again, don't settle for the ballot box. Don't just vote. Voting is barely the price of entry. After we vote, we have to show up at meetings. We have to listen to our neighbors. We have to show up in solidarity. We have to redeploy our privileges. We have to embody praxis. We have to learn and act and organize and listen and iterate and show up and and agitate and advocate. Each of those things will create opportunities. And I'm eager to get on the inside and be an ally to the outside movements from the inside and to leverage those opportunities that I'd have as a member of Congress, oversight, constituent services, legislation, on behalf of those same principles and those same social movements that I've been a part of on the outside. That's how we avoid getting subsumed by the party, is we take our fight into the institution through and beyond the election.
Thank you for that. So we're basically out of time, but I do want to give you a chance, Shahid, if you if you could, to uh, help us uh, help direct people to your website, to resources that they should uh, that they should make use of if they want to support your campaign or get involved in various uh, fights that you're involved in as well. Anything that you want to share? Thank you, Eric. I appreciate that. Folks can visit us online at shahidforchange.us. We're also on each of the major social media platforms: YouTube, Twitch. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Shahid for Change. And I'll particularly invite people to sign up to volunteer with us. We have a phone banking program with hundreds of people from around the country that have already been trained. Uh, We have a few thousand that are in a queue that we're working through. We'd love to invite any of your listeners to join us. Uh, That's a big part of how we're going to liberate this seat. Critique will not be enough by itself. So we're going to need a lot of help. And I invite that support. and uh, again, shahidforchange.us or at shahidforchange on social media sites. Shahid Buttar, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Really appreciate you giving me your time this evening. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for having me, Eric. Keep up Let's, the great work. Listeners, thank you as always for listening, and we will chat again real soon. <laughs>